Welcome to Midweek, a place where we dive deep into Scripture. So grab your Bible, a pen, and a notebook, and get ready to study God's Word. Okay, today, uh, guys, we're going to start in John chapter 8. We're going to pick up in John 8. We're going to start around verse 24, and we're going to enter into the... What did I say? I knew that. It's a test. It's a te- rewind that. Te- no, I'm just joking. You see, and that's why I appreciate the blood of Jesus to cover all my flaws and make me righteous before God. 18 around verse 24 is where we're going to start. So we started last week with the first trial. If you remember last week, we're going to go through the, all the trials. Well, not all, but we're going to name them as we go. We started with the first trial, and that was the trial before Annas. Now, Annas, as you read the New Testament, he's like, I like to call him like the crime boss, the mafioso crime boss of the New Testament. He is not the high priest at the time here. His son-in-law, Caiaphas, is the high priest. And Annas, he is really, though, the power and the authority and the main religious leader and political leader of the Jews of Israel. He's the one who was raking in the money, who controlled the Temple Mount when Jesus came and overturned the tables of the money changers, etc., etc. Jesus cost him a lot of money that day. And Jesus did it twice in John 2 and then in Mark 11. And so you kind of get the feeling that Annas really hates Jesus, okay? And that's the first trial that took place there. Now, there's... um. There, there is a, a lot of illegal things that are going on, and you and I read these trials, and we don't know that unless we go back in history. For one, the first thing that's illegal, they're taking Jesus through all these trials at night. It was illegal to try a person at night back then. Jesus, if you notice in the trials, never has any attorney or legal representation. They're supposed to give him legal representation. They're also not supposed to try anyone during a festival. Well, it is Passover at this time. So there's all these things that are taking place that are just illegal, but they're going ahead with it because they just want to take Jesus down. So we have um, ground to cover tonight, and hopefully you'll get a good feel for what Jesus is going through that night that he has betrayed, because now we're going to head into that second trial, and we're going to progress all the way to the sixth trial, and we're going to end off at the point where Pilate just says, go ahead, take him, take him, just crucify him. We're going to get all the way there. So John chapter 18 (laughs) and verse 24 says this, So Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, this is the second trial. This is somewhere now, because the first one was somewhere about one, unofficial. The second trial is somewhere now heading towards three o'clock in the morning. And there's reasons why we know that that's the time. The son-in-law of Annas is Caiaphas. Now, if you remember, and I will keep reiterating these things so you remember them, there's things I'll always reiterate because these are important things. Caiaphas is a a real historical figure, as they all are. We have now found, not me, but archaeologists 
have found in 1990 the ossuary box. Remember the ossuary of Caiaphas, very ornate, with his name on it. They found it in South Jerusalem. They were doing some digging there to build things. And in Israel, if they're digging anywhere and they find any bones or any old structures in the ground, everything stops. I mean, everything stops, and they go in with the archaeologists, and they dig everything up because they want to find out what that is. Well, they found the ossuary of Caiaphas. An ossuary simply means a bone box, which means when someone would die, the family would wrap the strips of cloth around them, do the preparation, put them in the family big tomb for a year to two years. Then they'd go in there after a year to two years, they go take what's left of the body, which is typically bones, and they put them in a bone box, in this bone box. And they put that bone box in a place with all the other bone box of the family members. They found Caiaphas' bone box. And so it's a really cool archaeological discovery. Amen to that one right there? Okay, so it's 3 o'clock in the morning having trial. One thing you're going to notice, what's unusual is, every one of these religious trials Everybody in these trials seems to have been awake. They never had to be woken up. Almost like they planned the whole thing, okay? Because they're awake. So here we go. Verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said... There's a relative of the guy whose ear Peter cut off right there. And he says to Peter, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied it again, and immediately a rooster crowed. Bullet point if you're taking notes. First thing is, in a night filled with false witnesses, you have a real eyewitness. Now, that may mean nothing to you, but I wanted to put that in there because as the trial progresses, if you read all the Gospels, there are all these false witnesses that are brought in. All these liars are brought in to try to convict Jesus. And they cannot. They can't prove any of these things. But in the middle of all of it, you have a real eyewitness who saw a real crime. And that's this person who saw Peter cut off the ear of this guy's relative. And he's saying, you're the one who did that, right? So Peter's denying and denying and denying. Now, if you remember what we said about the denial and the cock crowing about three or four months ago, I'll go back and let you uh, repeat it again. Now, there's two ways to look at this. And as I said before, I think Jerry, you and I, and Angel Camacho, we had left Caiaphas' home at that time, that dungeon area there. And we're walking and we're talking about this because our guide said this. And I said, I, I, I just teach both of them. And... Um, and that is that it could have been a rooster crowing. It, it really could have. Which would have made it interesting because during Passover, you couldn't have chickens or roosters in the city because if there's poop on the ground and you step on it, you're unclean and you cannot celebrate Passover. So there was this local ordinance that said you couldn't do that. So it's possible. So when Jesus said to Peter, the cock's going to crow, they were like, there's just no way. There's no roosters. Or, there's nothing in the city like that. That's one side. But let me give you the other side which I think gives, a, you can get a little more credence to this one. And that is that um, there's this thing called the Galiseum. It means cock crow. And at three o'clock in the morning around when this trial is taking place, uh, in the fortress of Antonia on the northwestern side of the city, they would do this kind of change of the guard thing. And they would blow the, this trumpet, this instrument, and it's called the cock crow. That's what they call it, the Galiseum. 
And when there's a festival like Passover and the city swells with all kinds of people, they don't blow it once, they blow it twice. They would turn one way and blow it, and they turn the other way and they blow it. So Peter, they all know it's called the Galilean cockroach. So when Peter denies for the third time, here there's one way and boom, the other way. And you could look at it that way where Peter and everybody knows the cock crowed, it crowed twice, just like Jesus said. Is that cool or what? I mean, I mean, to think of things like that, and it's, it's awesome. Now, remember last week I told you that when um, Peter denies him, what does Jesus do? He turns and what? He looks at him. He looks whether through it's a window or whatever it is. He looks at him, and Peter looks at Jesus after he denies him, and Peter runs out and weeps bitterly. I would too, okay? And remember that because when Jesus later on, when you read in um, and later other Gospels where uh, they, the women tell uh, the message from Jesus to the disciples is, hey, tell disciples, and Jesus specifically said, you, Peter, he wants to meet you in Galilee. Would you want to meet Jesus in Galilee? There's just no way. After you denied him, it's like he, he said my name? I'd be, oh, I don't know if I want to do that. Verse 28. Now, then they... Uh, then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early. Yeah, it was. And they themselves did not enter the praetorium so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. What hypocrites. We'll get to that in just a second. Okay, this is the fourth trial, somewhere about six in the morning. Notice we've jumped from the second trial to the fourth trial. Did you catch that? The third trial, John does not write about. It is in other Gospels. You put them all together, you get it all. The third trial is when Jesus is brought before the entire Jewish Supreme Court called the Sanhedrin. And they're all there early, early in the morning because they, were all, they had this all planned out. They want to take Jesus down. Now, the first three trials, and here's one of the interesting moves that is made. The first three trials are before religious leaders. So therefore, they're trying to bring him up on blasphemy. But when they come to Pilate, who's a Roman procurator, he's a Roman governor, this is the Romans now. They could care less about the religious stuff. So now they change the charge, these Pharisees and Sadducees. It's no longer blasphemy. They bring Jesus and they bring the charges to Pilate, basically treason. He's trying to overthrow the Roman government, Pilate. And so they specifically make this transition of charge against him because otherwise if they brought a religious charge Pilate could care less he doesn't care about that he'd be like you go ahead I'm going to go back to sleep but they bring this religious charge but this, um, this charge of treason now what's funny to me and we could fall prey to it is that Pilate is in the praetorium which is in the Roman fortress of Antonia inside the barracks area right there pavement and uh, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they won't come in there. Why won't they come in there? Because they will be defiled and Passover is about to begin. Now think of what that means. They will gladly arrest an innocent man. They will gladly break the law of charging him in trials at night. They will gladly break the law of not giving him any attorney. They'll gladly break the law and break the law and they'll bring false witnesses, but we can't walk inside there because if we do, we'll be defiled and we'll be made unclean. How hypocritical is that, huh? But here's the lesson for you and I. We can't just pick and choose what we want to obey. Amen? 
We've got to obey what it says, and, and that's just it, whether we like that rule or not. Now, verse, um, verse 29 and 30 says this. Therefore, Pilate went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? Now, he asked the question. Now, watch their answer, because this is funny. They answered and said to him, no, it's not funny, but it's interesting. If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. Bullet point. Next bullet point. They bring no accusation. There is no accusation. Think about it. He asked them, what accusation do you bring against this man? Guess what they're answering? When they say, uh, he, if he wasn't an evildoer, we wouldn't have brought him here. What they're really saying is this, just trust us. He's a bad guy. Just trust us. And boy, do we see a lot of that today, huh? They just bring and throw accusation, but there's zero evidence whatsoever. There's no evidence against Jesus. It's just trust us, man. John verse, uh, 18, verse 31. Now watch this. So Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews said to him, We are not permitted to put anyone to death. Verse 32. To fulfill the word of Jesus which he spoke, signifying by what kind, say kind, kind of death he was about to die. Okay, bullet point. Next one. Prophetically, Jesus must die by crucifixion. Correct? That's right, huh? Now, let, let, let's, uh, let's, kind of, well, let's kind of pull this apart. Okay. So, they bring him. And they say, and Pilate says, take him yourself. You, you take him, you judge him, and you go. And they say, we are not allowed to carry out capital punishment. That's what they're saying right there, right? Okay, this is where this, the background information really is interesting with what's going on here. Question, Jewish people, what was their method of capital punishment? Stoning. Prophetically, what will be the method that the Messiah will be killed? Crucifixion. But the Jews carry out stoning. Okay, so Jesus must die by crucifixion. So how does that happen? How, how does that work out like that? Well, if you go back in time to Psalm 22, if you know Psalm 22, it is a play-by-play description of what crucifixion is. Do you know when Psalm 22 was written? 1,000 B.C., a thousand years before that moment, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before crucifixion was ever invented. Nobody even knew what crucifixion was. They had never carried that out. But David writes prophetically and even quotes the words that Jesus would say a thousand years later. And so it's describing crucifixion. Go back and read it. Psalm chapter 22. Now, they bring Jesus to Pilate. And they say, we want him, you know, he, he deserves to die. Take him yourself. We can't put anyone to death. And this is where this story takes the turn of why Jesus was crucified according to the scriptures. So, about three years before this moment, somewhere in that time frame, um, the Romans took away capital punishment the ability to carry out capital punishment from the Jews. They, they took it away from them. 
The moment that happened, the Jewish leaders, they run out on the streets. This is a historical fact. And they yell that um, Shiloh, the scepter has departed and Shiloh has not come. The scepter has departed and Shiloh has not come. Now, to you and I, it's like, oh, what does that mean? Well, that's Genesis 49.10. They're quoting Genesis 49.10. And the scepter, they interpret that as the authority that they have from God. Shiloh means peace or the one who brings peace. Well, Jesus is the prince of peace. That's the Messiah. Shiloh is a Messiah term. And so when, when capital punishment was taken away from them, they interpreted it as God has failed us. And that's what they said after they quoted, God has failed us because the authority is taken away and Shiloh has not come. The uh, peace has not come. Shiloh is not here. And so that's what happened. Now, here's the question. They run out and they say, God has failed us. That was three years earlier. Had God failed them? Had Shiloh not come? He was already in their midst. Jesus was already on the scene. It's just they didn't recognize him. And they chose not to recognize him whatsoever. Is that cool or what? And how could Jesus have even planned his own birth to be born at a time when he could be crucified? Give me that one, huh? How could he pull that off? Well, unless he's God. That's about the only way he could pull something like that off. Okay, so here we go. Um, verse uh, 33. Therefore, Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him. Now, he brings Jesus into this area where the mob and the crowd's not there. And he says to Jesus, are, he asks a question, are you the king of the Jews? Verse 34. Jesus answered, great answer. Are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? Now, he brings Jesus in the praetorium. Question, will the Jews come into the praetorium? Oh no, because if they do, what will happen? They'll be unclean and then they can't celebrate Passover. No, Pilate knows that. So oh, I'll bring Jesus in and I'm going to talk with him. The key word when Jesus, when Pilate asked Jesus, when he says, are you the king of the Jews? The key word is, are you the king? Why would that be the key word in the question? Because if he declares himself the king, then he's going to try to overthrow their true king, who is Caesar. You follow me? Because remember, they're bringing the accusation of treason. He's trying to overthrow the government. Now, when Pilate, uh, when Jesus said, Jesus, it's a great, he goes, uh, when, he's, when Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? If Jesus says yes, what happens? There it is. Treason. If Jesus says no, what happens? The people of Israel lose their hope of the Messiah. Then I'm not the Messiah. It's a catch-22 question. So what does Jesus do? Because he's brilliant, you know. He throws it right back at Pilate and he says, are you saying this on your own initiative? Or did others tell you about me? In other words, you come up with this question? Or did somebody give you the question? Now, Paul, Pilate, he's appalled by that response, right? But it's brilliant. It's just a brilliant move by, by Jesus. He says, you define why I'm here, Pilate. Because Jesus is not going to give him a yes or no answer because it will seal the deal either way, the wrong way. Now, verse 35. Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? Can you just hear him saying that? He's so appalled. Your own nation and chief priest delivered you to me. 
What have you done? So now he says, I'm, I'm not a Jew. So, so what have you done? What's your crime? Because he's getting nowhere with Jesus. And he says, so what have you done? Verse 36. Watch Jesus. This is, this is another brilliant. So this, these verses right here, you got to remember. Jesus answered, my kingdom, verse 36, is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Verse 37. Therefore Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Now, first off, just catch a little thing that's going on here. He says in verse 37, for this I have been born. In other words, he was born in the flesh, right? But he also said in those verses, my kingdom is not of this world. Ah, and he said, I've come into this world and my kingdom is not of this world. So he's given you, I was born in the flesh, but I'm also a king of a different realm, a different dimension. What's he telling Pilate right there? I'm both God and man. I'm the God man. That's what he told him right away. He's telling him right there to his face. Right, right. And, and Pilate's uh, uh, listing this. Now, bullet point, next one. This is a very important bullet point off these verses here. And that is, you cannot impose truth by violence. You can never do that. You should never do that. You cannot impose truth by, by violence. Jesus said, <clears throat> my kingdom is not of this world. But if my kingdom were in this realm, my servants would be fighting you. I'd have an army here. And I have the truth. And I would impose that truth upon you. He says, but I'm not doing that. My kingdom's not of this realm. He just said something that our society is forgetting. You cannot impose truth upon anyone by violence or force. You cannot force anyone else to think and say and believe like you believe. But we're watching more and more of that. We're watching people, we've seen people lose jobs because they do not toe the line and believe the way they want them to believe. We're seeing more and more. That's, that's a dangerous place to be. It's a very dangerous place. Look, do I want everyone to come to the truth of Jesus Christ? Yes. Can I violently force them? Should I? No. No. Everybody needs to respect everyone else's belief system. Anytime I share with somebody who have different ways of looking at things, I don't get crazy on them. It's like I just try to convince them of Jesus. And if I, I can't, I trust the Spirit of God. He'll take what I said and he'll, he'll move in their lives. And that's just it. And that's it. And that's the way a healthy, good society operates. You can't impose uh, truth on anyone by, by violence. I mean, when Peter slices the guy's ear off, Jesus says, put the sword away. This is not the way we do it. This is not the way it's going to happen. Now, sidebar. Jesus says, everyone who is of truth, hears my voice. So there is truth, right? 
even though we live, in, and it's been progressing for hundreds of years now, in a very humanistic, relative thinking uh, society where things are just whatever you feel, and that's what it is right there. There's all kind, but, but, and they say there's no absolute truth, correct? We hear that a lot. Okay, if there's no absolute truth, I, would, I always try to give you some of these things that you ask somebody. I would say, did you go to college? Well, yeah, how much you spent on that education? Well, 125000 or 50000 So you spend 150000 on an education to go to a school where they're going to tell you lies because there's no absolute truth? <laughs> you should have all laughed at that, okay, by the way. Because it's ridiculous, isn't it? They're telling me I have, there's no absolute truth. Spend all that money on an education where you're saying there is no absolute truth. See, there's logical ways to dialogue with people as they throw things at you, okay? So um, here we go. Let's move on now. Verse, uh, verse 38. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him. Say in him. In him. It's very important to say that. Now, Real quick, he says, what is truth? This is like one of the biggest questions Pilate probably ever asked in his entire life and anyone will ever ask. Now, here's my first question. I'm going to give you three quick thoughts on that. Do you ever wonder how Pilate asked? You ever wonder, was he sarcastic? What is truth? Or was he, what is truth? Because we don't know, do we? We have no idea how he asked that question. Maybe he was seeking. I, I, I don't know. The second thing I want to say is this when he says, what is truth? Isn't that the biggest miss of all time? Isn't that the biggest miss in the history of mankind? Because what's standing right in front of him? Truth. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. This is the biggest miss of all time. Second biggest miss ever? The thief on the cross that says, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us too. He rejected Jesus. Second biggest miss ever. I mean, if you think about these things, and if you really think about what's going on here in this situation, or let me add one more thing this way. Satan is always trying to eliminate truth, correct? Yes. Yeah, what is truth? You know, when, I mean, when, when, when Eve starts dialoguing with the serpent and she says, you know, God said we can't eat that. And he says, as God really said. In other words, there's no truth here. And Satan's always trying to abolish truth. Now, question, is Pilate in a pickle? Yeah, you better believe he is. Do you know in one of the other Gospels, his wife does something. Do you remember what, she, what his wife does? She has a dream. Remember, this is the middle of the night or early in the morning, and she has a dream about Jesus. And in the dream, she's told, have nothing to do with this man, Jesus. So she rushes to her husband's side, and he's in a dilemma because they're pressing him. And, and he says, My, honey, just let him go. In a dream, I was warned that you need to just let this guy go. And so now the pressure is on. Now, while he's in the pickle, the fifth trial takes place. It's not in John's gospel because uh, Pilate will hear that Jesus is a Galilean. He's from the north. And so Herod, the one who killed John the Baptist, beheaded him. He's in town and he oversees the Galilean area. So Pilate says, oh, not my jurisdiction. And he sends Jesus to Herod, who's in town, for, for the festival, for the time here. And Jesus goes, that's the fifth trial. But all Herod wants is for Jesus to do a trick, do some magic tricks. And does Jesus do any? He does nothing for the guy. And so Herod says, oh, he's boring. And he sends Jesus back. 
And he comes back to Pilate. Can you imagine Pilate is eating his eggs and bacon breakfast in the morning and the, here comes Jesus back again? Can you imagine? It'd be like, oh my gosh, I thought I was done with this guy. And now trial number six is going on here. Now, <clears throat> let me give you background so you understand why Pilate's in a pickle. We know from history, there's a letter from Agrippa to Caligula. We all, you've heard of Caligula, right? Real cool guy. There's an actual letter that's been, that they have. And in the letter that's written to Caligula, it's talking about Pilate. That he is one mean, unbending, tough, judgmental administrator. Is he that way in this trial? No. History paints him tough. This trial paints him weak. Why? Let me tell you why. Because Pilate's on report to Rome. When Pilate took power, there's some things that he did over the time, but when he came in, he had his Roman soldiers carrying these standards, and on top were these um, images, these little statuettes, and for a Jew, that's a what? That's an idol. So they rebel, and a riot breaks out, and Pilate tries to handle it, and I, I think this is the one where they threw themselves on the ground, and he's, he's going to slice their necks, and he go, they go, slice all our necks because thousands will take our place. And so Pilate has to back off, gets back to Rome. He's on report. And then another time, Pilate's building an aqueduct to help the Jews. He runs out of money, so he breaks into their temple and takes their gold to finish the aqueduct. Do you think that went over well? Oh, no. And a big riot breaks out, gets back to Rome. Another time, he, he has his soldiers where they have these shields with the image of Caesar on there. Well, do you make an image for a Jew? No. So a riot breaks out, gets back to Rome. So he's on report that he cannot control what's going on here. Plus the fact that Pilate, um, yeah, Pilate, who put him in charge in Judea, this guy that he kind of grew up with, put him in the position. His name was Lucius Sejunus. He has been killed and executed by Roman leaders. And so now he has nobody, no friends in political power back in Rome. He's on report. And so now he's on shaky ground. And the Jewish leaders know that. So when they bring Jesus, who's, carrying, who's holding all the cards? They are. They know it. Pilate knows it. And so he's a lame duck leader at this time. And he's not the tough guy that history tells us that he was in this particular moment. So Pilate is going to start throwing some last-ditch efforts to try to get out of this. And he tries. And that's verse 39. But you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? He, he says, look, I got somebody. Really, you want me to release the king of the Jews? So they cry out again saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now what's Barabbas? Now, Barabbas was a robber. Okay, bullet point. Next one. Pilate's Hail Mary backfires. Hopefully you all know what a Hail Mary is, okay? If you don't, ask somebody on the way home. So they have this custom. And Pilate knows that, okay, we can pick somebody to release for you at Passover. He's going to make a, just the most contrasting choice for them. And he says, we, they basically, you read all the gospel, we can give you Barabbas. The guy's, he's, a, he, he's in there for treason also, trying to overthrow Rome. You don't let that guy go. He goes, you want Barabbas or you want Jesus? 
And who do they pick? Barabbas. Did that shock Pilate? Yeah, he thought for sure they're not going to pick Barabbas. They're going to pick Jesus. Oh, no. They picked this guy right here. Now, chapter 19. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. Have you ever wondered why when you and I read the Gospels, it just says, and they scourged him, and they crucified him, and there's no description? You ever wonder why? Because those people back then saw scourging all the time. Those people back then saw crucifixion all the time. You didn't need to write any descriptions. They knew what it was. If you wrote descriptions, they'd say, I just... I'm not going to read that. I already know what that is. Do you and I know what it looks like? No, we never saw it. We never experienced it. So let me tell you a little bit. So the scourged victim, they would strip him of all his clothes. This is what they did to Jesus. They'd tie him to a post. He can't move. The lictor, who's the torturer, he's a pro at it, he would take the whip. Cat of nine tails. At the end of all the whip, there's pieces of bone and little pieces of iron, I think it was. He would start to whip. And you go up and down the body, legs and everything, everything. Pretty soon the back, everything begins to swell up, welts. Then eventually the cuts start to happen in his back. As he, as he hits and hits, it digs deeper and deeper and deeper. To the point that you begin to see the back open up. And as the back opens up, you could see the internal organs right there. Is that crazy? Now, the Jews in the Old Testament, they could whip a man 40 times. When they would do it, they would whip him 39 times because they didn't want to violate the number and thus be in trouble themselves. But these are the Romans whipping Jesus. They didn't care about 39 or 40 times. They had no laws. They would whip a man till he was almost dead, but not quite. And most died at the scourging. When we were in Caiaphas' house, if you guys can remember, because you were all there. If you remember that torture, the dungeon down there, they had these carved out spots in there like you could put liquid in there. Well, if they scourged a man down there, they would have salt water in these, and they'd take the salt water and throw it on a man's back to wake him up again. Can you imagine that? And they're going to put a robe on Jesus too. Can you imagine it coagulating to his back? Imagine all that stuff, okay? Now, now you've got a, 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 a simple, quick picture of a little bit of what Jesus went through. Now, verse 2. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. Verse 3. And they began to come up to him and say, Hey, O king of the Jews, and to give him slaps in the face. Now, bullet point next one is this. Jesus is reversing the curse of Genesis. He's reversing the curse of Genesis. Now, how do I know that? Because they twist a crown of thorns, do they not? Now, the thorns are like two to two and a half inches long, and they press it into his head. Now, I want you to think about this, because when Adam and Eve sin, what is one of the results of their sin upon plants? They would grow thorns. Oh. So now Jesus is getting a crown of thorns on his head 
And it's a picture of him reversing the curse that is upon mankind, that is upon our lives because of sin. Is that crazy? Is that awesome or what? They put a robe on him. Now, to show the, the humiliation they would put him, he's standing there naked. This robe in the Greek, I think Mark is the one who describes it best, is only to the waist. Can you imagine how much shame that is? And yet, we know from Hebrews 12 too, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. He said, I'll gladly go to the cross for you and for me. I'll, glad, I'll despise the shame. Yeah, it's shameful, but I'll carry it and I'll do it for you and me. I'll reverse the curse. And think about shame in our lives, that gut feeling that I'm bad and I'm wrong, that I don't measure up. He says, I came to reverse that too. I came to reverse that for you. And I want you to think about this. They put a robe, or in other gospels, they put a piece of material over his head. And remember, they're, they're hitting him in the face, but when they put the piece of material over his head, one of the gospel writers says, prophesy, son of man, who hit you? Because he can't see. And they're saying, prophesy, which one of us is going to hit you? Which one does it? Now, if you think about that, it's incredible because they're telling, prophesy, who hit you? Well, they're telling this just a few minutes earlier, a prophecy that he gave Peter before the cock crows twice, you'll deny me three times, came to pass. Did it not? The prophecy came true. Didn't the prophecy come true as we're talking in that moment? As he's talking, he told the disciples four or five times, they're going to arrest me, they're going to scourge me, they're going to kill me, but I'm going to rise from the dead. That was a prophecy, and it's coming true. And they're screaming, hey, prophesy, who slapped you? Really? That's what will convince you? Man, I've been, he's been prophesying left and right, and things are coming to pass right before their eyes. And they can't possibly know that, but this is what's going on. Right. Is that incredible or what? I mean, I get pumped up about that stuff right there. Now, verse 4. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, now he's been scourged. Behold, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Say, in him. Okay, no guilt in him. Now, verse 5. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify, crucify. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by that law, he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. Hold the thought. Okay, next bullet point. The scourging doesn't satisfy the mob. This was another torture, Hail Mary, where he has Jesus scourged, and he thinks, This will be enough. This will satisfy. Did it satisfy? Oh, no, they, they want him dead. Angry people who want to keep position, they don't care. They don't care. It's never enough for them. Now, he says, take him, crucify him yourself. Question, can they crucify him? They can't. They, he, he knows that, and they know that. He says, I find no fault in him. Remember we talked earlier in the pregame here how our standing before God is righteous? You know why that is? Because there's no fault in Jesus. Pilate was right. He's sinless. And you and I, when we put our faith in Jesus, are we in him? Say yes. And since there's no fault in him and I'm in him by faith, guess what? There's no fault here either. I'm the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus and so are you. And so are you. It's one of the greatest truths you'll ever walk in in your life. Now, <clears throat> he says at the very end of verse 7, big statement, verse 7, 
He ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God. That's a problem. The Jews know it's a problem. That's why they said it. Because Pilate, all he has to do is pull out a coin. And on that coin, on one side is the image of Caesar. On the other side is the inscription that says, Son of God. Whoa. Whoa. And they just said, he says he's the son of God. Pilate knows, oh my gosh, I'm in He's got to do something now. He's got to do something. He has no choice. Verse 8. Therefore, when Pilate heard the statement, he was in more, even more afraid. He's terrified. And he entered into the praetorium again, and he says to Jesus, he's coming in one-on-one. Jesus, I've got to ask you the question, because Pilate didn't know what to do. And he says, where are you from? Because are you getting the feeling that Pilate's feeling like, this is not just an ordinary guy. But, he gave him, but Jesus gave him no answer. He gave him no, you know Why? Didn't Jesus already say my kingdom's not of this world? I already told you I'm not from here. Why are you asking me again? Verse 10. So Pilate said to him, you do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus said to him, one of my favorite Jesus lines against Pontius Pilate. You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Bullet point. The serpent's lie makes another appearance. The serpent's lie makes another appearance. What do I mean by that? Okay. The lie of the serpent to Eve was, Eve, if you eat the fruit, you will be a what? You'll be a God. That's the problem of humanity, right? They're summed up in a line. But the rest of it is the problem too. You will know the you'll know good and evil, right? Which means whatever you think is right or wrong will deify your opinion. Your opinions will go, and that's our problem in society. It's always been the problem from the garden. It's the problem. Man thinks he is God. Romans chapter one. We deify our opinions, and so what he's telling Eve is this: You'll have the authority. What you think is what goes because you have the authority. And Jesus, uh, and we find the same thing here. Pilate's saying, don't you know I have the authority to release you and have you crucified? I'm the shot caller. And what does Jesus say? You are kidding yourself. You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. Jesus says, you think you're in charge? You, you think you set all this up? You really think that? No, Pilate, I'm in charge. And I've been in charge from the get-go. Because we know that Jesus said he lays down his life by his own volition. He says, I'm in charge, not you. Now, let me read 12 to 16, and then let me close out with a thought. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. You think? But the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. They're pressuring him more and more. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the pavement, uh, on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. 
Now, it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. It was around six in the morning, somewhere in there. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. So they cried out, Away with him, away with him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? Chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Can you imagine the religious leader saying that? <laughs> Calling their king, Caesar's our king. What hypocrisy. So he then handed him over to them to be crucified. Okay, now let me share with you something I've shared before. And hopefully you remember it. I will share it in the future because it is so, such a cool thought. Who do they want, Jesus or Pilate? Um, Jesus or Barabbas? Barabbas is, he's a robber. He's a mean hombre. Barabbas is way down in the barracks of the fortress of Antonia. He's down there in a cell. They're way up here, outside of that area right there. And Pilate's dealing with the mob, the crowd. Okay. When Pilate's talking to the crowd, <clears throat> and he talks as a single voice, just one single voice, he says, who do you want me to release, Jesus or Barabbas? The crowd yells, Barabbas. Barabbas. It's loud, huh? Then the single voice, Pilate says, what should I do with Jesus then? And they yell, crucify. Now, if you're Barabbas way down in the barracks, you follow me, huh? You can't hear Pilate's single voice. You hear the mob. And you hear them say, Barabbas! Crucify! So what are you thinking in that moment? Today's the day I die. This will be the day that I die. And then you hear the Roman soldiers coming down there. And you hear the key jingling. And they come to your cell. And you think this is it. They unlock the door. They remove your shackles and they say, you're free to go. What? You're free to go. That'd be a shocker, huh? And why would he be free to go? Because someone was going to die in his place. Jesus was going to die in the place of a sinner like he died for us. And started right there. I'll give you one more about what Jesus did. When Judas betrays Jesus and he gets the silver, he feels so guilty he want, and he throws the silver in the temple treasure, Remember? They don't want his blood money, and they were just as guilty. So they take that and they buy a potter's field, right? Yes. A potter's field is a field next door to a potter's house where the potter would make his pottery. And whenever the pots wouldn't, as he's trying to finish them, they would break and crack. He would just throw it out in the field. It's no good. And that field would accumulate with a bunch of broken pieces of pottery. The blood money of Jesus purchased a potter's field. So not only does he die in the place of sinners, he dies, his, he was sold out, the money was used for his death to purchase a field full of broken pots. Who are the broken pots? So he dies in our place to give us salvation, and in that salvation, 
He begins to take all of his broken pots and piece us back together, conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, (laughs) you did so much. And it's amazing to study it. But most of all, we're just grateful that we have the truth of your word. That you died for us sinners. And you piece all of our broken pieces of life together again. As we grow in you. We're so grateful for that, God. Man, we're so grateful for your word. It is life. It is life. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. If you need prayer or dedicated your life to Christ, please reach out to us on our social media, on Facebook and Instagram at NBCCNorco, or email us at hello at NBCC.com. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to share and subscribe to this podcast.